I'm grateful to Shane, our director of youth ministries, to lead us in worship today and as well as being a fellow Mississippian. And, you know, whenever you leave the state of Mississippi, it's like you're going to a foreign country. So you have to get shot sometimes. Make sure you don't infect anybody. You guys think that's funny, don't you? (laughs) Well, we are here at the very end of Daniel, and we should praise the Lord because we went all the way through the book of Daniel and we didn't split the church. That's That's a hallelujah for us. After today, and we conclude the book of Daniel, the rest of the summer we're going to look at the life of David. We're going to take some snapshots of the life of the best earthly king that the people of God ever had in David. We're going to look at his life in First and Second Samuel. But today, we conclude the book of, da- da- of Daniel. You might remember my very first sermon on this book, and I commented that the message of Daniel is essentially the same thing in 12 different chapters. It's like we have a diamond, and each time we turn the facet of the diamond, turn the chapter, we're allowed to see and to admire yet one more facet of this same beautiful truth. And now here at the end of the book of Daniel, we're given a summary and a so what. We're given a summary, once more reminded that although it might be difficult to see in our lives, Jesus sits on the throne. He rules and He reigns, but here we're also given a so what. We're also challenged to ask, what kind of a people ought we to be in light of that truth? What kind of a people ought we to be in light of the truth that Jesus sits on the throne while we wait, and even though it may appear that no one sits on the throne? Let's turn our attention to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 5 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on the bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And one, someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end all these things would be finished i heard but i did not understand then i said O lord my god what shall be the outcome of these things he said go your way daniel for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes and make plain to us what kind of a people you're calling us to be. Enable us to be a people of faith and hope and trust. Enable us to have our eyes open to see King Jesus ruling and reigning in our lives and in our world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Okay, now what? Have you ever thought those words? Have you ever said those words, whether you've been in the physician's office or a counselor's office or your work office or at your kitchen table or reading the newspaper? There are times when we receive hard news and we try to figure out where do we go from here. Now that I've heard this, now what? Now what do I do? That's where Daniel was at the end of his book. He heard in chapter 11 about the patterns of the wars and the oppressors and the the suffering that God's people are going to endure. And the struggle would be mighty. The struggle would be brutal. And then in verse 5, Daniel was joined by three angels in total and one of them on one side of the river Tigris and one on the other. And he reported a vision. After hearing that bad report, one of the angels asked in verse 6, How long shall it be to the end of these things? And then the angel that was telling the story in verse 7 gave an answer. Most of the time in the Old Testament, whenever you swore to tell the truth, you raised one hand. But this angel raised both hands as if to call on the very presence of God as witness because the answer would be so unsettling. Saying, I'm telling you the truth and I know it's hard, but here the Lord is is bearing witness to this truth. When's it going to happen? He gives a symbolic language again. Time and times and half a time. Meaning it's going to be a long time, but God knows the answer. God knows the end. That's not the shocking part. We've heard that answer several times in the book of Daniel already. When will these things happen? It's going to happen in the future, but God knows exactly when. The more shocking part comes when the angel says these things end when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. Or we could translate it, when the power of God's holy people has finally been broken, then comes the end. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not what I want to hear. That's not what we expect to hear. That's certainly what we don't hope to hear. We've been expected, maybe after all the wicked are finally broken. After all the unrighteous are brought to their end, that's when the end will come. But that's not what he says. Because fixing all the broken parts of this world isn't the precursor to the end, but instead it is the breaking of the holy people, the breaking of the church, the breaking of you and me. That's the precursor to the end. That's hard news. I wonder in verse 8 Daniel says that he didn't understand. It wasn't so much that he couldn't comprehend the vision, but he rather says, how can this be? God, how could you allow this kind of suffering to happen? How could it be part of your sovereign plan? What do we do now? How do we go forward from here when we read, Lord, it's your intention that we suffer? Daniel asks. Maybe you ask the same question. God, what are we to make of all of this brokenness and this suffering? Yet isn't that so often how the Lord works in our lives? He works through the places of brokenness. He works through the paces of pain. He works through our weaknesses rather than our strength. It's the world that says, I have to look like I'm on the top. I have to perform my way to get to the top and I can never let them see me sweat. That's what the world's wisdom says. But by contrast, the Lord's path is so often through humility and brokenness and repentance so that His strength is seen in our weakness and in our suffering. It's so often the Lord's plan that He snatches victory 
from the jaws of defeat. The angels address Daniel and for you and for me and the answer to this question and asking the question, it's pretty similar to the question that the Apostle Peter asked in Second Peter chapter 3. He said, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all the hard things that are coming to God's people, he asks, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? In light of these truths, what kind of people are we supposed to be? What is our goal? What is our call as we live in a broken world, in a fractured world, with God as its only hope? What kind of people are you and I supposed to be as we wait for His return in the righting of every wrong? Well, we're given three answers in the remaining part of this text. The so what? What kind of people are we to be? First, we're to be the kind of people who pursue gospel growth in purity. Look again at verse 9. The angel said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. He's saying, Daniel, go on your way. That is, keep taking steps to live for the Lord. Endure, persevere in living for the Lord. Because verse 10, many shall purify themselves. I think we can better translate that phrase as many shall show themselves to be pure. Or also, many shall be purified. What the angel is saying is that God's people have been refined. In other words, there are things that are going to happen to us. Purification is going to happen to us by a force that's acted on outside of us. We are going to be purified by the Lord's work. What now? What do we do now? We seek to be purified, is what the angel tells you and me. It speaks to the process of how Gold and silver and even iron were purified in Daniel's day where the, the dross was removed as fire would come and both separate and purify this metal. They would use intense heat applied to the ore, to the precious metal with all the impurities mixed in. And as that metal ore was heated, the metal would sink and the impurities would separate out to the top where either they could be skimmed away or the fire would be so intense that they would be burned up. And the metal would be made strong. The metal would be made dependable because it was being made pure. The angel says, Daniel, go your way because God is doing His work of separating and purifying you. Both internally as a person and externally as a people. You, Daniel, are being purified. And my people, the church, is being purified even in the midst of struggling and suffering. The idea here is that like metal, God's people who've been separated out, who've been purified, would become dependable. They would be the kinds of people who are able to withstand attacks, even when the wicked act wickedly. The purification work of the Lord both reveals that He's at work inside our hearts, and it also furthers His work among us as His people. It's that purifying work of the Lord that makes us shine like stars, Daniel says. In verse 4. Well, how does that happen? How does that purifying work that separates and purifies, how does it go about? Well, initially, it happens as we are purified, not by our good intentions, not by our good works, but by God's work in the gospel of grace. 
Just as Daniel and the saints in the Old Testament looked to the sacrifices to make them pure, you and I look once and for all to the Lamb of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was slain to make us pure, who was slain to wash away all of our unrighteousness. You know, the world might tell you that you are made pure, you are made more dependable by what you can do when you clean yourself up. Or some Christians will tell you you are more pure when you do a lot of stuff for God. The more we do, the more pure I am, some people say. But the Bible says that we are made pure before God when He has acted for us. Jesus went to the cross for sinners who are impure. Sinners who could do nothing to save themselves. Sinners who could do nothing to clean themselves up. It is by the blood of Jesus that we are made clean. By the blood of Jesus that we are made pure. He is the one who does the work of making our dead hearts alive by regenerating us and enabling our hearts to believe and to trust. And it's through repentance, that is, turning away from our sins and through faith, turning to the Lord, that we are made pure. We are counted righteous. We are counted pure. We are counted holy before our God. So once and for all action, we are cleansed in the sight of the living God by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bled to make us pure. He has bled to make us righteous. Do you believe that today? That you are purified by God, not by what you do for Him, not because you've done more for Him, not because you're a pretty good guy or a pretty good gal in the eyes of the world. That doesn't make you pure. That only makes you less impure than the next person. If you want to be pure and holy, it has to be God's work in you that does it. But there's more at work here in this purifying work. We grow up. We grow up into that identity that God has declared about us. We grow up into that gospel statement that we are God's pure and beloved children. That is, we are, we are becoming more and more like God has declared us to be in part through suffering. It's one of His tools. It's what God told Daniel here. We are declared pure by God's action. And then we are made pure in part through our suffering. It is specifically through the Spirit working in our hearts and transforming our lives when we suffer that you and I are made more like Christ. We're given here a theology of the purpose of suffering in our lives. Suffering is given to prepare us to shine for the Lord before the world. That's what suffering does. It purifies us. It, it furthers God's work in us. It makes us stand out before the watching world. The work of Jesus and by His Spirit within us is revealed when we suffer, but that work is also furthered. It is grown. It is developed when you and I suffer, when we struggle and we suffer, even when the wicked act wickedly all around us. Even when the wicked act wickedly toward us, then the Spirit of God in us is made visible before the world. When we have hope, when there's no earthly reason for us to have hope, when we persevere, when there's no tangible reason to get an earthly good for us to persevere, when we trust Jesus to make a way, when with our eyes we can't see a way, then in those conditions, it's the work of Jesus that's set on display before the world. 
He is the one who furthers His separating and purifying work in us through suffering. And the world shakes. And when the world shakes its head at us as Christians, as we stand on His Word, the Lord stands faithful with us. We are being sifted. We are being purified. We are being separated so that we are made dependable in the Lord's forge. The reality is, friends, that you may never sense the Lord's nearness and presence in your life at any other time like you can when you are suffering. It's a holy place whereby God through the gospel is doing His work of purifying you. Never doubt God's presence when you are struggling. Never doubt His presence when you are suffering because in fact God is at work. And none of His work is wasted. And none of your struggle is wasted. You are being more like, made more like Jesus as you struggle and you suffer and you experience pain. Ever since James Cameron's movie about the Titanic came out, there's been a renewed study of why this unsinkable ship, in fact, sank. And there was a whole host of scientists and engineers that studied that problem from 1997 to 2007. And they think they settled on the reason, at least why it sank so quickly, and it was the rivets. The rivets that held the steel plates of the hull together. There were these little bitty iron rivets that had a mushroom-shaped head on them. And to join the plates together, they were pounded in. But you might know that this same company was building three gigantic ships at the same time. And they were running short on iron. And so the shipyard decided to use a lesser grade of iron to make the rivets to hold the steel plates of the hull together. They cut the purifying process short. They didn't get as much of the slag out of the iron before they made them into the rivets and put them in the sides of the ship to hold the plates together. As the ship crashed into the iceberg that fateful night and it began to twist and the steel plates of the hull were stressed and water poured in through that gash that was made, these little mushroom-shaped heads of these weak, impure rivets popped off. They popped like champagne corks at a New Year's party. And the hull plates began to pull apart. And the ship went down. Those little rivets weren't dependable when the stress came because they hadn't been sufficiently purified. But not so with you. The Lord has made us pure by the blood of Jesus. And the Spirit grows us up into that purity when we suffer and when we struggle. He uses our pain in this world to prepare us, to make us dependable, to make us pure, to make us shine like stars before the world. The take-home, friends, is this. When you're suffering, know that Jesus is at work. He's at work molding and shaping you and loving you into a child that will shine like the stars before a watching world. He has purified you by His blood and He is working in you through your suffering to make you look more like Him. Let's not rail against it. Let's not accuse Him when we struggle and when we suffer. For our struggling is the very means by which the Lord separates and purifies us as His people. 
the second thing that the angel calls us to do as we are waiting for the Lord's return. What kind of people ought we to be? He says we are to be a people who pursue the Lord's wisdom. We might expect the contrast in this text to be between wickedness on the one side and righteousness on the other. That would make sense, wouldn't it? But instead, the contrast in verse 10 is between the wicked who act wickedly and God's people who are wise. Isn't that interesting? The contrast is wickedness versus wisdom. And that's really not a contrast based on simply what we know. Because wisdom in the Bible, as it's defined and as it's used, especially in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is the truth of the Lord put to work in our lives so it changes how we live and changes what we love. So what we're seeing here is the distinction of what we live for, a distinction based on what we love. Wickedness, which is life curved in on itself. Are we living for selfish goals or are we living and loving for God's wisdom, which is our life bent toward the Lord and His ways? Whose ends define our loves? Is it self or is it God? That's the contrast drawn here. And doesn't it make sense that if God's people in the world live for and love different things, doesn't it make sense that we should expect to stick out? Wouldn't it make sense that we might appear strange, that we might be misunderstood if we're living for and loving different sets of things before a watching world? I know that some of you in the congregation today are suffering because of what you're living for and what you're loving. And it's causing you to be ridiculed at best and opposed and hated at worst. Even within some of your families, you are being ridiculed and opposed and told that your values are out of sync with our modern world, sexually, relationally, in many other ways. We as God's people standing on the wisdom of His Word in our culture are often told, you are a fool. You need to get with the times. You need to, you need to get with the modern world because you are stuck way back in the dark ages. You might be on the receiving end of a lot of opposition and hate. And yet, what Daniel tells us here is we should expect it. We should expect to be called fools for Christ. Because the wisdom of God isn't the same as the wisdom in the world. As we live with the wisdom of God, we are shining like stars, verse says. And verse 10, verse 4 tells us. And verse 10 says, we will ultimately be vindicated. And yet we will shine only by a life of contrast to what's around it. The light shines in darkness. We are called to follow Christ and His wisdom even if the world doesn't understand us. Even if the world calls us fools. Even if the world ridicules us. We are called to stand upon the truth of the Lord. Because we live for different things. We love different things. And yet the question for us who are told that the wicked are going to act wickedly, when we are told that we're going to be mistreated, when we are told that We may stand out before the world. The question for you and me is how do we respond? How do we respond to the people around us, to the world around us, when we are out of step? How should we interact with people who oppose our life, people who oppose our loves of the Lord and His ways? Well, one thing is for sure. We don't return wicked treatment with wickedness. 
And yet it is so tempting to do. Let me say it a different way. We can't stand for the message of Jesus while adopting the manner of our flesh. We can't stand for the message of the love and compassion of Christ by adopting the manner of the devil and the manner of the world. How do we do it? It's so easy. We may respond to opposition. We may respond to ridicule by ridiculing in return. Isn't it easy to do that? When we are attacked for our beliefs, for our faith, it is so easy to respond back with a stronger attack. But that's not God's wisdom. We might ridicule someone who tells us that we are out of step and we might want to, in return, say, you are really stupid to think the way you do. If you had your eyes open, if you could see the way of the Lord, then you wouldn't be quite so dumb. We may not use those words, but certainly isn't our posture toward the world like that quite often? Or we might return our opposition with snarky Facebook posts. And no one is changed by a snarky Facebook post. (laughs) We are God's people. We can't adopt the means of the world as our own. As we are God's people seeking to respond to a world where we are told the wicked will act wickedly. We expect it. And yet we don't return wickedness with wickedness. Instead, when the attacks come our way, it provides the church an occasion to live as a community of love in the face of suffering. It provides us an opportunity to have an alternative society to demonstrate values and concerns that are willing to suffer in order to love someone who may see the world wrongly. We're not to attack back when we are attacked. We're not to ridicule back when we're ridiculed. We're not to return being snarky with being snarky. But instead, when you're attacked, do the people around you see the love of Christ come out of you? Or when we, you are opposed... When you are ridiculed, when you are treated as a fool for Jesus, do they see Jesus in you? Another very tangible question to ask is when someone makes fun of you for your faith, do they feel from you what Jesus said from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What do they experience from us? Is it love? Is it compassion? Is it tenderness in the way that the Lord has pursued us when we were wicked? Or not? You and I are given an opportunity when the world opposes us. We are given an opportunity to extend the grace of life to those who are perishing. When we demonstrate that we are a people of love in contrast to a world of wickedness, then we will shine like stars. But if we use the same tactics of the world... Darkness looks just like darkness. We can't embrace the message of Christ and adopt the manner of the world. We pursue His wisdom. And even when we are accused, even when we are opposed, we adopt His wisdom and His way. And finally, we are challenged to ask what kind of a people will we be? We are a people who will endure in His hope. We finally get the answer to the question of verse 6. How long? The answer comes in verses 11 and 12. When we read about in verse 11 these 
these additional 1,290 days and then a little bit more in verse 12, 1,335 days. Some people try to make it a, a literal countdown about the temple. But I think, again, what we're given instead is vision language like we've received all through the book. It's vision language to tell us that we must endure until the end. We endure until the day when the Lord will return. And as we endure to the end, it may look like it's past just when it should be. We may expect it at a certain time, that 1,290 days, but we're called to endure the full 1,335 just beyond where we think, the Lord, surely you're going to come back now. Surely things couldn't get any worse than they are right now. Surely you won't let the world continue to go this way. You've got to come back right now. The Lord is saying, be patient and be faithful and keep going your way, Daniel, verse 13. Keep living for me because it's going to be a little longer than you expect it to be. That's what the angel tells Daniel. Go your way, Daniel. Live for the Lord, and yet one day you shall stand in the resurrection in your allotted place, he tells him. That term allotted place is used 25 times in the book of Joshua. And it's reserved to speak of the place of God's people finding their final home. And we know that the promised land, Canaan, wasn't the final home of the people of God. The angel is describing for Daniel here the final home the new heavens and the new earth, when the Lord Jesus will come back and rule and reign and all sin and evil and disease and brokenness is finally put away. And he's saying, Daniel, hold on tight because you've got a spot reserved. You have a reservation. You have an allotted place alongside your king in the day of resurrection. He says that to you and to me. Hold on and remain faithful to the end and just pass where you think the end should be because you have a place that is more beautiful than you could ever imagine reserved just for you. How much longer, Lord, we ask? It feels like it's past time for you to come. It feels like you, sh- you should already be here. The world has gone crazy. Where are you, God? And Jesus says, live for me. Just a little while longer. Because just because you don't see the resolution doesn't mean that I failed. It simply means that my purposes and my presence and the refining of my people to shine like stars is not yet finished. By my Spirit I will do it and I will bring you to home, your allotted place at the end. But hang on. England had its own Daniel in the 18th century in William Wilberforce. You might know Wilberforce lived his entire life, his life in Parliament at least, to pursue the abolition of slavery from the British Empire. And you may know that it was because of his commitment to the Scriptures that he gave his life to oppose slavery in the British Empire. One of his life verses was Acts chapter 17, verse 26 which says that God made all, made every nation from one man, speaking of Adam. Or as Wilberforce liked to paraphrase it so often, he says, the same blood flows through us all. We all have the dignity of being made in the image of God, and none of us should enslave another. was Wilberforce's conviction about the way that God made the world. And yet in his day, 
that conviction was roundly ridiculed and opposed. And he was called a fool to believe that someone with black skin should go free because they are equal to someone with white skin. You're a fool to believe that, the society told Wilberforce. And yet Babylon, he did. It became his mission in life to abolish slavery because the wisdom of God demanded it. And he gave his life to pursue that end. He saw the slave trade finally outlawed in the British Empire in 1807, but it only drove the trade, un- the trade underground. So he continued to battle, not only to outlaw the trade, but to outlaw slavery as an institution anywhere in the British Empire. And it didn't happen for another 26 years. He was called a fool. He labored for 26 more years until one house finally approved a bill that abolished slavery. And he died three days later, never seeing it come into law. A month after he died, the other house approved the bill outlawing slavery. And it wasn't enacted for four more years. Here was a man who gave his life for God's wisdom, gave his life for righteousness, even in the face of attack and ridicule and suffering and opposition and even attack upon his family. He was a fool for Christ. And yet he stood. And with his earthly eyes, he never saw the conviction of God's best ever come about. He didn't see it happen until he was able to look from heaven and see God bring about that mission. Perhaps it will be so for us. Perhaps we will never with our earthly eyes see what we believe the Lord should do in this world. Perhaps we will never see the turning back of wickedness in our land. Now what? What do we do now? Now that things are hard and the outlook is bleak, what do we do? We seek to be a people who grow in purity. By the gospel. We grow in purity by reflecting on the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. And we don't turn away from the suffering that comes, but we realize that God's work is revealed and even furthered as we suffer. And we will shine with purity. We will shine like stars as God grows us, even in the face of opposition. We also are called to be a people who pursue His wisdom, even when it costs us something. Even when we are made to appear as fools before the watching world, we are called to God's wisdom because God's wisdom is what's best for this world that He made. And finally, we endure with hope. We endure with hope of knowing that one day He shall return and you and I will find our allotted place. We will be brought safely home into the arms of our Savior. And when we arrive there, there will be no more sin No more suffering, no more struggling, no more disease, and no more death. So today, we live for the King Eternal. Today, we live for His life within us, so that through us, the world sees His life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by Your work, You would confirm and grow us and make us more into more of this kind of a people. Make us a people who are pure. Not hypocrites, but pure. Made so by Your blood and made so by Your work of Your Spirit within us, bringing us sanctification and growth to be more like Jesus. Pray that You would work within us 
a desire to run toward your wisdom rather than apologize for it or run away from it. And we pray that you would make us more and more into a people who endure because the hope of the resurrection life and everything that is broken will be made right. As we wait, make us into that kind of people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.